Good morning, Faith Church. I am looking out the window at a gorgeous spring in Colorado with everything covered in snow during this season of COVID-19. We're also in the season of Easter. It's called Eastertide. It runs from Easter until Pentecost, which is 50 days later. So in light of that, we're going to continue to look at the resurrection scene. And specifically today, we're going to be in John chapter 20, verses 11 through 18. So I encourage you, if you have a Bible, or if not, you can pull it up online right now and follow along. Keep it in front of you as we walk through this text. This is John chapter 20, starting in verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the fact that we can come together in one way, shape, or form, and we hear your word, and as we listen to your word, we listen to this account of Jesus's resurrection. We ask that as Mary encountered him, that we would encounter him today, that you would allow your spirit to speak to us very specifically, very directly, as we try to understand what was taking place and how that now impacts us in our present day, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So prior to what we just read, the context here is Mary had gone to the tomb. She found the stone had been rolled away. So she runs back, tells the disciples, and telling the disciples, Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved ran back to the tomb, and they also looked in and found it empty. So we pick up there in John chapter 20. John's account of Jesus' post-crucifixion shows that Mary, along with the rest of Jesus' friends, his followers, were pretty messed up. They were distraught, and understandably so. There's no surprise with that. None of this is how they pictured their week going with Jesus. Jesus, the week before, had ridden on a donkey into Jerusalem with people crying out, about him, that he is the king, and a few days later, they're crying out for him to be crucified, which is exactly what happened. Their hope for him had been crushed. He was dead, and now his body had been stolen, so they think. So I want to be careful in how we compare our particular and specific circumstances we're facing right now to what they were going through. Nonetheless, I think it's legitimate to acknowledge that they 
were experiencing something that turned their life upside down. They were not certain about their future. They were certainly not certain about their present situation and whether they were safe. So we can connect with that to some degree right now in our time of death and quarantine and uncertainty and for some of us loss, for, for some of us fear when the world is so quickly turned strange for us. Not everything that Mary faced is directly transferable to us, but there are certainly implications for us. And specifically for us today, we want to look at this coming out of the text. Encountering the risen Jesus prepares us for our present circumstances. When we encounter Jesus, he's actually preparing us not only for a fantastic future that lies ahead of us, but he's preparing us for our present circumstances. So looking at this, a legitimate question is, how does he prepare us? Well, as we see Mary, we want to consider how this may shed light on how Jesus is also preparing us. So I'm going to look at four different areas, four things that Jesus does in that preparation. And they're this. He questions the obvious. He restores our relationship. He sends us on a mission. And then he unleashes God's glory. So we want to look at each of those in turn from, from the text. As Mary reenters the scene, weeping, she looks into the tomb. She sees these messengers these angelic figures who she doesn't recognize, it doesn't appear. And they ask her a question. A question. And as that is happening, as this interaction is taking place, she must notice that somebody is behind her, so she turns around. She sees Jesus, who she thinks is a gardener, and he then asks her the same question, but then also a follow-up question. So Jesus knows the answer. Why is he asking? The same reason Jesus ever asks questions. He's asking questions for the benefit of the person that he's asking. He's using it as a, as a tool to prepare and to equip. And the two questions that are being asked have obvious surface answers. They are, who are, wh why are you weeping and whom are you seeking? Why are you weeping? Um, she, she doesn't say exactly what we would think that maybe she would say, but the answer is pretty obvious. She is grieving. She is in pain. And she's, in, and she's grieving and she's in pain at a multi, multitude of levels. That as we look at her, I want us to think about how maybe that compares to our times of grieving and our times of pain. On the top layer, it's a relational grief. There's a relational pain. She loved Jesus. And Jesus died. She was grieving over the loss of a relationship. This is the obvious, like, first-level grief that she's experiencing. She followed Jesus. She was looking to him to be some kind of a, a leader, if not the Messiah. And she had even been healed by him. This is talked about back in Luke 8 and had become part of his close-knit community. And it even become, it appears, a financial contributor, a supporter of him. So now, on top of all this, to add fuel to the fire of her grief, his body's gone. Already heartbroken, now she can't finish preparing the body for burial, which means she can't get closure. That intensifies grief when you can't have closure. That's one level, the relational pain. But then there is a broader problem in light of who he was 
and then how he died. All he did during his life was help people. Evil and death won again. The poor and the oppressed are crushed again. The hopes of a good king rising up, one of the people, was squashed in a moment. It's the way of the world. Societal injustice is understandable. It's, it's understandable that that causes grief and it causes pain. For her, I would imagine, certainly for us. But then for most of us, I think there is another level, something more personal, more more self-reflective, and it's grief over our own frailty and mortality. Like when you face these kind of grieving moments, it can cause you to reflect on your own life. Maybe what we are going through right now in our current time of, of death and a virus spreading across the globe, maybe that can help us tap into this level. And when we do so, it prepares us. It prepares us to connect, to connect with the reality that we are all dying and we live in a world that is full of death. Oddly enough, though that is very sobering, that can prepare us to also connect with others in their grief. To be honest and to be present and to walk through the hard circumstances, not only for ourselves, but also as we experience it, we can walk through those hard circumstances with others. It, it prepares us for that. Death and grief, in the end, are not generic. They are deeply personal. Why are we weeping? That is a loaded question, I think, for all of us to consider. It involves relational pain and societal pain and then personal pain. Jesus goes on from there, and he's asking a second question to prepare her for something even greater. The follow-up question is, whom are you seeking? And she doesn't really answer this question. She just kind of accuses him of being a, 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 a corpse stealer, taking the body. But who is she seeking, or, or what is she seeking? She's seeking Jesus' dead body. What's behind that search for her? Well, a closeness, right, to what was. This is why people go and visit grave sites of loved ones, because they're oftentimes trying to gain some kind of closeness to what was. But then also closure. She's looking for closure. So as the reader, John is letting us in on what's really going on, right? He has the bigger picture than what Mary has as she's walking through it and he's telling the story in hindsight. And he could have told the story in a lot of different ways, but he didn't. He, he told it in a particular way. He's highlighting the irony in this interaction. There is an irony here. Something better than what she was seeking was in front of her, and she was blind to him. Why? Well, lots of people have ideas about this. One is there's physical blindness in the sense of her tears were clouding her. She couldn't see. Or, and we see in other accounts, uh, Jesus maybe looks different to some people at first. So maybe there was some physical aspect of her blindness that made her not be able to see him. But even so, sorrow blinded her. This is something that can happen to, to any of us. We can get so consumed with our own pain and our own sorrow and our own self that we sometimes miss what's in front of us. 
the larger reality of what's in front of us. If you're expecting to find a corpse, sometimes everything looks like a corpse. It's, it's hard to see anything more if the something more is in your face when you're grieving, when you're overwhelmed by that grief, which is connected to another potential blindness for her, and I would say maybe for us as well, which is preoccupation with her mission that, that blinded her. She was so fixated on her mission, she couldn't see that her burial mission, the thing that she was after, was now invalid. It, it, it wasn't a legitimate mission anymore. It was obsolete. So for us, where might we be blind? Generally, I guess, is a, is a fair question. Where might we be blind? But specifically, blind to seeing Jesus. Um, or maybe it's blind to his relevance, the relevance of his, of his life and his death and his, his resurrection. Maybe the despair we experience in our weeping can actually spark a curiosity about this one who has claimed to overcome death. Maybe when we walk through the grief, it's, it's sparking a curiosity about somebody who has overcome death. With these questions, Jesus teased uh, her up for what's going to come next, which is then this restoration. In her blindness, what is it that opens her eyes? Mary. It's what opens her eyes. She hears his voice speaking her name, this personal connection. So John is fleshing out something that Jesus had talked about earlier, back in chapter 10, where he had he had spoken about shepherds and sheep, and he said, when a shepherd calls his sheep's name, they hear, they hear his voice. I have a vague recollection of when I was a wee little tot. Back in South Carolina, I was at the grocery store with my mom, so that probably means it was Piggly Wiggly or Winn-Dixie or one of those grocery stores. And we were walking through the aisle, and I don't know how old I was, maybe two, three, four, 18, I don't know. I was a young kid. So I was walking with her through the aisles, and I looked up, and my mom was gone. I looked around, and I probably saw lots of other mommies, but I didn't see my mommy. Utter terror. I don't remember the story really well, except for I remember the feeling of utter terror, terror and anxiety. I had lost my mom. And it went on for hours and hours. Of course, it didn't really. It felt like it went on for hours and hours. It's probably, literally, it was probably seconds. And I don't remember if I walked around the corner and saw her in another aisle or she came around. But when I saw my mom's face, and I don't actually remember hearing her voice, but when I heard her voice eventually, it was like I went from death to life. It was an experience that transforms a little mind and a little kid when you were so lost and then you were found when you see the one who loves you either coming towards you or you going towards them. When we experience lostness from our grief or maybe even realization that what we have pursued is empty. Maybe we have pursued corpses. Maybe in those times we are being prepared for the first time or maybe the hundredth, hundredth time to hear Jesus call our name, 
to restore you or maybe to remind you of his restoration. As, as Jesus called her name, Mary then turned, it says in verse 16, and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher, Jesus said to her, don't, don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go tell the brothers um, and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. Having restored Mary to himself, so this has taken place, he goes on to talk about a time coming where he's going to return to his Father. And that's something new. Something new is actually happening in their relationship, Mary and the disciples and his followers, their relationship with God as their Father. Now, right here, we're getting a taste of what the apostles are going to later flesh out in much more detail, that through his death and his resurrection and soon-to-be ascension, Jesus was restoring people, us, not just to himself, but also to God as Father. Relational restoration can be the absolute greatest encouragement you can experience when you're facing certain particular circumstances of life. When life is unstable, when it's uncertain, when it's unpredictable, to know that you have been secured in a relationship with the one who stands over all circumstances can be a tremendously powerful experience. It can be a tremendously powerful motivator for our life in the moment. When life is rough, this is for me personally, when life is rough, if things are good between me and Fran, if we're in right relationship, the rough stuff just isn't so bad. Now, we've had times where things maybe weren't so good between us and the rough things seemed even rougher. But when things are right, it just makes a difference in what we're facing. That is such a small thing. My relationship with, it's a big thing, but it's such a small thing compared to if you know that you are right with God. That you have been restored to Him as your, as your Father, and, and not because you did something to earn it, but because Jesus did something on your behalf. It's one of the most freeing things you can experience, and it is a game changer regardless of what you may be facing at the time. For those who encounter the risen Jesus and they turn to trust and to rest in Him, He guarantees this kind of res restoration. It's the best thing that He can give us, whatever we face, because He's giving us Himself and He's giving us His Father. That's the best that He can give us. So then back in verse 16, 17, I did skip some of what Jesus said. He said, again, to Mary, don't, don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but I go to my brothers and I say to them what he said. Then she went and she announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. So as Jesus restores her in relationship, he then sends her on a mission to tell a story, to tell this story. This, this is what happens when we encounter him and we find him life-altering. He then sends us to enjoy what he's done, to tell what he's done, 
and in many ways to, to embody this crazy story of his, of his life, his death, his resurrection, of his rule over this very strange kingdom that overcomes by being overcome, that wins by losing, that finds oneself by losing oneself, and that demonstrates love by absorbing hate. He invites us to be ambassadors and an embodiment of that kind of kingdom. And this is, he's sending her on this mission. So I do want to have a, uh, give a little clarification because I know this passage can be tough for some people. I talked to somebody this past week who was saying this passage was tough. There are um, what appears to be some hard things that Jesus says to Mary. Um, it can come across very harsh when he says, woman, stop clinging to me. If, if I were to say that to one of my daughters or my wife, I don't think that that would go very well. Come on, Jesus. She's excited about seeing you. Why are you trying to push her away? It sounds like rejection at first glance, but if you step back and you look at it in its context, a couple of things. One is she was allowed to cling to him for a time. Like even the, the verb form right there is saying stop clinging, meaning she is already clinging. But also back in Matthew 28, verses 9 and 10, it's talking about her clinging to him. So she is clinging to him. He's allowing that. But then second, his words are more, I would say, of an encouragement and an invitation rather, rather than a harsh rejection. He says, I have not gone to my father yet. In other words, look, I'm, I'm not leaving right now. I'm going to be around for a little bit longer. So, therefore, I have a mission for you. Go tell the good news. He's commissioning her. He's sending her to be an apostle to the apostles, to be a preacher to the preachers. That meant it was time for her to move from hugging and keeping him to herself to sharing him, which she does with joy and enthusiasm. There's no, there's no sense in the text, like in this text and in other accounts, that she feels rejected. This interaction is actually honoring to her. It's what she needed. Maybe sometimes this is the kind of thing we actually need to hear from Jesus as well. Sometimes maybe we are similar. We want a, a deeply emotional and intimate and private relationship with Jesus, which is that's not a bad thing. It's just that he's preparing us for more than that. If you encounter the risen Jesus, he of course wants to be close to you. This is why he came. He came to restore relationships. So he wants to be close to us. But in that closest, closeness and actually to grow in that closeness, he sends us to enjoy what he has done, to tell what he's done, and to embody his story of restoration. So throughout this whole account, John is clearly painting a picture that in Jesus, God is drawing near to us. Now that he has walked through death and he's come out the other side, there is something new that is happening. There is a, a new sense of him, what we're going to call unleashing God's glory into the world. It's an unleashing of a glory and a goodness that then inv invades us and prepares us to live life right now. So I want, to, I want to flesh out this image that I think 
John is tapping into, okay, I, I may be reading a little too much into the text, but I'll let you kind of think through this as, as we walk through this idea of what I think John is tapping into. And regardless, it's, it's worth chewing on. Let's um, step back for a minute from the immediate text and think for a moment about how, how did God draw near in the Old Testament? How did, he draw, how did he draw near and how was he near to Israel in the past? Uh, where did he give pictures of what we might call heaven and earth intersecting? Do we, do we have any images of that? Well, the beginning of the book tells us, like of Genesis. In the garden, it says he walked with man in the cool of the day. God's presence seemed special in that place. There was something special about that. Of course, it didn't last long because we broke away from him. We lost this paradise, which we have been trying to recreate on our own terms ever since then. But, but it was there. There's an image of heaven and earth meeting. But God refused, even after that, to abandon us. As we move on in the story, he later met Moses on the, at the non-burning burning bush on Mount Horeb, and then later on Mount Sinai, which many would say Horeb and Mount Sinai are the same place. So he meets him there where he gave him the words of life, the, the tablets, the Ten Commandments, and much more. These words included instruction for how he, God, and his glory would dwell with people, which was what? How is that going to happen? A tabernacle, a tent, which later became the temple in Jerusalem. In that space, okay, think about that. This is the space, the temple. In that space, there was an intense hot spot that was called the Holy of Holies. And inside that hot spot was an ark, the, ark, the famous Ark of the Covenant, in which were some of the tablets of God's word that he had given to Moses. So this, this represents the, the meeting place, this, this, hot, this tabernacle, temple, um, Holy of Holies, where this ark is, represents the meeting place of heaven and earth, the image of God's presence and glory with his people. The problem was, what's the problem? Hardly anybody was allowed to even go into this space. Why was that? Well, sin and rebellion, alienation from God, all of that kept us from being able just to walk in to this heaven and earth space. So, so what was required to connect people to this space? A representative. It's what the priests were all about. They could, they could walk in one, once a year, could walk into that space on behalf of the people, and then they would walk out on behalf of God for the people. But what else was necessary? A sacrifice. You don't just walk into this place. A cleansing substitute was necessary. An animal that symbolically took on the problem of the people. In other words, it symbolically wore the sin of the people and suffered death in their place. So all of this was a way of reminding anybody who watched this, either within Israel or from outside of Israel, anybody who was watching this, of, of a couple of things. One, we had broken relationship with God, so that had been severed. But then two, God deeply wants to restore relationship. 
If someone were watching this year after year, they might wonder, is this system broken? <laughs> is, is this insufficient? Like, why do you have to keep doing this? And why are people not really changing? What people need is not just sin covered. We need some kind of deeper, inner, holistic cleansing. We need a better way of being human, of relating to, to God and to each other and, and to the world. We need a greater sacrifice a greater mediator who can actually take care of the problem and, and change us, actually. If this could happen, then not only, not only could we enter the space, right, where heaven and earth met, that space could then spread to us. It could fill us. And then we could go out and we could carry it. We could radiate it to the world. You, know, you wouldn't need this Holy of Holies place anymore. Holy of Holies could go everywhere. Which was God's original design in the beginning, was for man to be that ambassador to the world. That presence of God represented in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, in this ark, and the words inside of that ark. What if, what if that exploded? What if it was unleashed into the world? So I, I hope you're getting the image. I know this is a lot. Why all this? Like, what does this have to do with the text? What does it have to do with this big idea of encountering the risen Jesus that prepares us for our present circumstance? Like, what does it have to do with this? All right. John clearly sees Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament story. That's very clear throughout his uh, gospel account. With all this in mind that we were just recounting, listen to this. So this is, again, back to the text in John 20. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, this, this inner room, you might say. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. Okay, why does, he, why does John describe it this way? This is just an interesting detail. So Jesus had been on this table, shelf type of thing. Um, he'd been laying there. And now on both sides where Jesus' head had been and where his feet were, were now these angelic beings. What's, what's the significance of this? All right, what, what might John be tapping into? What image might he be, be, be painting? Okay, listen to this. This is Exodus chapter 25. Um, starting in verse 10. So this is the instruction for how you're going to build the Ark of the Covenant. And it says this, They shall make an ark of acacia wood. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, and you shall make two cherubim, these angelic-type creatures of gold. On the two ends of the mercy seat, make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. The cherim shall spread, the cherim shall, shall spread their wings out above, and they shall overshadow the mercy seat with their wings, their faces facing one to the other toward the mercy seat, shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall, I shall give you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherub that are on 
the Ark of the Testimony. I, come on. I mean, is this, maybe it's coincidence, right? Or is John trying to link us back to this scene? Like as he's looking into the tomb and looking to the inner room, is he linking back to the Holy of Holies, to the Ark of the Holy of Holies? And whether he is intending that or not, he makes this clear. Jesus was the hot spot of heaven on earth. Jesus made a way into the hot spot. The presence of God by not only being the priest who mediated for the people, but being the sacrifice who wore the sin of the people. So that through the horrible cleansing fires of his death, he came out the other side. He was raised to new life, giving birth to humanity 2.0. Paul doesn't call it 2.0, but he does refer to it in 1 Corinthians 15 as He's the first fruits of a new kind of people. All that tabernacle and, and ark, all that it represented, Jesus was in reality. When he walked out of the tomb, he was unleashing into the world the true glory of God. All this Jesus did, not for himself, he did it for you, for me, for us. He went through the fire and the resurrection so that if we identify with Him through simple, simply faith and repentance, He says He will give us that new life. What He gained, He will give. And yes, fully, we're going to realize that on a future day. There's going to come a day where we will be raised from the dead and we will experience it just as He did. But as we are drawn to Him right now, as we identify with Him now, as we follow Him now, as we're consuming Him now, as we find our rest in Him now, we begin sharing in that resurrected life and glory and power now in our present circumstances. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word and how it gives light. But we are in desperate need for your Holy Spirit to open our eyes. Where we are blind, may we see. And may we see most specifically, may we see Jesus. May we see him raised from the dead as the one who has conquered death and has given us his life, who now seated at the right hand, and he rules and he reigns over all that we face, even the things that seem so hard that we're facing right now as a, as a world. Lord Jesus, you reign over this, and your kingdom is still coming on earth as it is in heaven. May we see you, O great King. And Lord, for any who may be intrigued by this one who overcame death, would you draw near to them? Would you draw them to yourself? And for those of us who have found you to be beautiful, reaffirm to us your beauty. Transform us. Continue to transform us and send us out into the world to tell the story, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.